Reach for a Bible as I welcome you, especially if uh, you've joined us since the start of the service. Uh, my name is Paul. If we've not met, uh, I think Scott may have said I'm the minister here. Great to welcome you. If you've got a Bible in, you could turn to page 1021 or in your own Bibles to 1 John chapter 1. That would be a big help to us. We've just sung our passage, but we're going to read it together again. But first, why don't I lead us in prayer? Thank you, Almighty God, that you are light and that in you there is no darkness at all. Thank you that the Lord Jesus is the true light of the world, that he shines brightly in our world amidst all of its darkness. And we pray that you would help us to know you better this morning, to know ourselves better, and to be more thankful, more joyful. Uh, that the Lord Jesus was willing to shed blood so that we might be forgiven. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm going to read to us then from 1 John chapter 1, verse 5, down to chapter 2 and verse 2. This is the message that we have heard from him and proclaimed to you, that God is light And in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Please do keep that open in front of you. There's also an outline on the back of the notice sheet saying where we're going over the next little while. Uh, There is a painful inconsistency, I'm going to call it that, a painful inconsistency that stands at the, the heart of every Christian's life. Go something like this. We would openly tell you that we love and we worship a God who is infinite in his holiness. Uh, We know and we believe that he calls us to be a holy people. And on our good days, we actually want to battle and strive to live good and holy lives. And yet, there is hanging around us all of the time, like a If you've ever had a bad smell in the kitchen and you're looking everywhere to try and find where it's coming from, you just can't find where it's coming from. If you've got a stain on a garment and it doesn't matter how much you try and get rid of it, you just can't get rid of it. For all of us, sin just hangs around and our lives are riddled with it. Uh, We have better days and we have worse days, but at a heart level, when we're being honest with ourselves, we know that we continue to sin with such 
regularity. That depending on how our consciences work, some of us will find ourselves wondering whether we're even Christians in the first place. It is a a painful inconsistency, and you might think it's a bit harsh of me to bring it up on a a Sunday morning. But my aim, perversely, weirdly, I guess, in doing so, is first of all to encourage us. Because you might think that if I've got a problem with ongoing sin in my life, that that would disqualify me from being a Christian. It would prove that I'm not a proper Christian, and certainly there are people who say that. But actually admitting that we continue to struggle with sin, we're going to see as a sign that we are in genuine fellowship with God. And then secondly, I want to reassure us that the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross that we're going to remember as we share the Lord's Supper together is sufficient, gloriously sufficient, to purify us from every single one of our sins even the most persistent and lingering. Uh, Let me start by telling you about Bill, though. Um, Bill turned up in a home group I was leading when I was about 21. I'd been a Christian for four years, I think. Uh, Bill had been a believer for about 50. And uh, Bill exuded the sort of Christian maturity that is really attractive in an older person when you hang out with them. One night our Bible study was about sin and godliness. I thought Bill might have some wisdom for the folks in the group. So I asked him how it was that he'd managed to persevere in the fight against sin in his own life uh, for five decades or so. I was finding it exhausting after just a few years. This was his reply, much to my surprise. He said, well, I haven't actually sinned deliberately for about 15 to 20 years. Uh, He said there are times when I must have driven at 40 in a 30 zone without realizing it. So there's stuff that I've done without knowing it. But in terms of willful sin, deliberately doing something that I knew to be wrong, he said it hadn't happened for 20 years or so. He wasn't very arrogant about it. He just thought that it was the truth. I don't know how you'd have reacted, let alone as a Bible study leader who didn't really have a clue what to do next. I found it pretty unsettling, though, as I thought about it, as I went away and reflected on it afterwards. Here was me, age 21. I, I longed to be sinless. I thought, what a wonderful thing that would be. But I knew I was anything but. And yet Bill seemed to have found the answer. Why was that? Did he have something that I was missing out on? Was he closer to God than I was? What was the story? Uh, We've got three points this morning. The first is a great truth about God, and then we're going to have two implications that flow from it. First, the truth, God is light. Uh, I don't know what you would say if I asked you to summarize the Christian message in just 11 words, if you'd be able to do that. Maybe you've learned a gospel outline at some point. Uh, The one I learned was nothing like verse 5, but have a look at it. Uh, John says, this is the message we heard from Jesus and proclaimed to you. This is our message. God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. Uh, 11 words, like I say, but vital. Uh, And as he often does, we'll see this in the letter, John states a positive first and then backs it up with the negative for emphasis. So God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. And we know that light does loads of things. Light um, shines. We know that light gives warmth. Light gives life. 
Something else that light does is it dispels the darkness. So if you walk into a very dark room, you turn on a light, the darkness disappears. And God is light in his own being in such a way that it doesn't matter how well you get to know him, you won't find even a trace of anything that is dark or evil inside him. It's a point about who God is. Um, Theologically, it would mean that God is the God of perfect truth, that in him, in his person, there is no error at all. He cannot lie. Here, though, the emphasis would be moral, and it means that God is perfect in everything and in every way all of the time. Uh, Immediately, that makes God very different to us, doesn't it? You and I sin. We've said in thought, word, and deed every day. God has never once, can you get this? He's never once had a selfish thought. He's never once spoken a, a spiteful word or muttered something under his breath. He's never once committed a secret sin. Every thought pure, every word true, he's only ever done what is right. There's something else going on as well, which is the effect that light has on everything around it. We'll see that's the main focus, I think. I illustrate it by talking about bathroom lighting, which might seem a bit odd. Um, Our bathroom down in London before we moved up only had one light bulb in it, and it was one of those really, I don't think they sell them anymore, really old-fashioned energy-saving light bulbs that you turned it on and it took an absolute age to warm up. It was great, because if you... um, If you look at yourself in a mirror in a room that is virtually dark, you can convince yourself that you look wonderful. In our bathroom now, we've got these spotlights on the ceiling. There's even lights on the mirror for some reason. And there is nowhere to hide. You go into our bathroom, you know exactly what you look at. So much so now that I sometimes just don't even turn the lights on at all because ignorance is uh, sometimes kindness. Uh, God is light, Not a a 10-watt energy-saving light bulb. Blazing, brilliant, pure light. And so whenever anyone draws near to God, they find that the, the darkness within them is exposed. Uh, Six months before I became a Christian, if you told me that I had a, a deep sin problem, I would have denied it. And I would have gone away talking about how weird you were. That's not because I was perfect. It's because I was living in darkness. But then when God opens your eyes and you see that he is light, very soon you begin to see how dark your own heart is. The the light of God exposes the stains within That foundational truth about God is our first point this morning. He is light. Points two and three, as I say, are the implications. First, denying sin is therefore a comprehensive lie. Uh, John says the same thing three times. He often does this. We'll see in the letter. There's a general heading, then he unpacks it a bit more. Verse six is the general heading. If you glance down, if we say that we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we're lying and we do not practice the truth. What does it mean to walk in darkness? Verse 8 specifies, if we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Again, verse 10, if we say we have not sinned, we make God a liar and his word is not in us. 
So the issue is one of um, authenticity. There were people around in John's day who were claiming to be Christians whilst also saying that for them sin was a thing of the past, that they had some kind of victory over it. John's saying that is darkness talk. It's impossible. The only way that you could ever claim to be without sin is if you were walking, if you'd never come into the light. Uh, Stories told of a man whose job it was to sound the siren in his factory hundreds of years ago, I think, every afternoon at five o'clock to tell the workers that it was time to go home. Uh, The only trouble was that his watch kept losing time. So every morning on the way to work, he walked past a shop. It had a clock in the window. And so every day he would readjust his watch to the correct time so that he could set, uh, sound the siren at the right hour. The shopkeeper watched him doing it. One day he came out, asked him what he was doing. He said, well, it's very simple. My job is to sound the siren in the factory at five o'clock every afternoon, but my watch keeps losing time. So I come here every morning to recalibrate my watch, to get it to the correct time next to your clock. And uh, the shopkeeper replied, well, I'm sorry to tell you this. My clock loses time every day. And so I wait until the siren goes off in the factory at five o'clock in the afternoon, and then I adjust it uh, accordingly. Uh, silly story, isn't it? I, I would say that that is roughly where we are at as a country. Because if our standard of good and evil, of right and wrong, is flawed, if I just compare myself to the way that you live, and then you compare yourself to the way that I live, and we both compare ourselves to whatever the media is telling us is acceptable on any given whim that they're on lately, then it is like living in the presence of a 10-watt light bulb. And we can both convince ourselves that we don't really have a sin problem. And John is saying that if you meet someone who claims to be without sin, it's a clear proof that they're not in a genuine relationship with God. Uh, I've put on the sheet two ways in which we see this today. I'd love to know what you make of these. The first is the obvious one. If someone denies the actual presence of sin, it's maybe not all that common. But when I met Bill, my first thought was that he'd achieved this sinlessness that I longed for. He must be closer to God than me. I was reflecting on what the Apostle John might have said if he'd had Bill in his uh, home group. I'm sure he'd have been very kind about it. But eventually... He would have had to say, Bill, you're deceiving yourself, and the truth is not in you. Uh, We we can't be sure exactly what form the lie was taking in John's context. I think I said last week, the church had suffered this split. Some of the people who had left were claiming to have a special anointing with God, to have super extra knowledge of God, to be closer to God, to have victory. And it seems that one of the things that they were saying was that for them, sin was no longer a problem. Uh, they may not have gone so far as to say that they were perfect, we're not quite sure, but the people who'd stayed behind felt disqualified. They were left worrying about whether they really knew God, whether they really had eternal life. And you see then that John is flipping it on its head. He's saying that if they're claiming not to sin, that makes them the darkness people, not you. You're fine where you are. And he goes on uh, to say it even stronger. In chapter 3, verse 8, he will say of these leavers, these teachers, 
they're not of God, they're of the devil. And in 2.18 he'll say they're not of Christ, they're antichrists. He's saying that's how serious the lie is. Don't fall for it. Don't let it unsettle you. But having said that, my guess is that most of us don't come across people who deny the presence of sin all that often, if at all. I think Bill's the only bloke I've met in 20-odd years uh, who would have said something similar to me. Uh, he may not, there are, though, however, plenty of people who suggest that sin, while it might be present, is not really a problem. Uh, here's one way that it might work. You, you would go and talk to a Christian minister or a Christian friend, maybe, and you would say to them, I'm really struggling with sin. And their first reply would be, well, look, you're no worse than anyone else. And you say, no, look, I, you don't understand. I keep falling into the same sin again and again, and I'm worried about what it says about my soul. And they say, you don't need to worry. God's a God of love. He doesn't want you to feel guilty. But it's a sin that the Bible specifically says would prevent someone from being a part of the kingdom of heaven. I am worried about it. And they said, no, you're overreacting. The Bible's a, a touchstone, but times have changed. What matters is how you feel, whether you're being true to yourself. If you are, God will be very happy with you. And you'll see that they haven't said sin doesn't exist, but they have redefined it so drastically that they're saying sin is no longer a problem. It's a line of thinking that is taught explicitly and implicitly all the time, but you'll see it's the exact opposite of verse 6. Glance at it once more and tell me, what would John say of an individual, a church, a denomination who tells you that it is okay to walk in a pattern of life that the Bible calls sin, a deed of darkness rather than light. Verse 6, uh, he would say they have no fellowship with God. You'll see he's talking about walking in sin. Let me stress that. We're, we're not talking about the occasional stumble of someone who loves God and wants to please him. We're talking about someone who is making it a regular habit and thinking it's okay. And I called it a comprehensive lie in the title because we're not only deceiving ourselves, which we are in verse 6 and verse 8, pretending we're better than we are, but we're also calling God a liar. Because God says all have sinned and fall short, and we're saying, no, I, no, I don't. And therefore it is clear that his word of truth is not in us. And John's saying it all to point the finger at the people who had left the church saying they might claim to have a deeper knowledge of God, they are frauds. Denying sin is a comprehensive lie. And all through the letter, John's aim in, in calling out the leavers is to reassure those who have stayed, I know that you sin, but you still know God. The other implication is more positive. Third, this morning, finally, confessing sin leads to forgiveness. And again, you'll see that John says the same thing three times. General heading, verse 7, if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. What does it mean to walk in the light? Verse 9, if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins 
and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And then in 2 verse 1, my little children, I'm writing these things so that you may not sin. But if anybody does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins. And not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. So there's a great realism about it. John's not giving us a blank check. He's not saying, oh great, God's forgiving, so now I can go and live however I like. I'm writing so that you do not sin. But along with our realistic expectations, he wants us to have real deep assurance And however much we flee from sin, however much we strive to put it to death, you are never going to eradicate it from your life, not in this life. In fact, because God is light, you may well find as the years go by, the better you get to know him, the dirtier you feel. Because his light will always find new layers of selfishness in in my heart and maybe in yours to expose. But the reassurance, the crucial bit, when we do sin... Because of who God is, he will always forgive us. So it's not like a a phone deal, if you've ever had one with limited minutes or with limited data. And if you sin once too often or once too big, you somehow run out of credit with God. He has promised that whoever comes to him, whoever comes to him, he will never drive away. And he always keeps his promises. Uh, One of you said to me that when you know that you've done wrong, when you know that you've sinned, let God down in some way or another, or if you've failed to do the right thing, or if you've failed to read your Bible and pray sometimes, you feel guilty about it, feel convicted on that. But more than that, you, you feel as though God must be in a grump with you in some way. And so this weird thing happens where you, you say, well, I know, you say, Joseph, I know that I ought to read my Bible and pray and to come back to God, but God might be in a grunt with me, and therefore, so I'm not going to read my Bible and pray, and so it gets worse and worse. As though the thing that had given you standing before God in the first place was your performance and how well you were doing, that that would determine how clean you were before God. If you've ever felt like that or do in the future, see verse 9 with me again. And look what happens when you come back to God. Very simple. He forgives us our sins. He doesn't pretend that they don't matter, but he forgives them and he purifies us so that we're completely clean. So picture the heavenly courtroom and a Christian sins. Uh, let's say it's, it's you if you're a follower of Jesus. And immediately the devil, who's the, the accuser, the chief prosecutor, jumps to his feet and says, right God, you are a just jo- a judge. Look at this sin. You have to punish him now. You have to punish her now. But then thankfully our defense lawyer can get to his feet. Our advocate, as he's called in verse 1. Jesus Christ, the righteous. And he says, yes, that sin is real. And yes, it deserves to be punished. But there is no need to punish him. There's no need to punish her. 
because their sin has already been paid for in full by another. That's because of verse 2. Jesus Christ is the propitiation. In other words, the atoning sacrifice for the sins of all of his people all over the world, whichever nationality you're from. Uh, The meaning of that word propitiation has been debated as much as any other in the New Testament over the years. Here the basic idea is is simple enough. It's that instead of us having to bear our own sins, instead of us having to pay the penalty that our sins deserve, on the cross, Jesus took our sins to himself and the penalty fell on him instead. That's what we mean when we say that Jesus died in our place or he died as our substitute. He took my sin to himself and the penalty for it fell on him so that it would never need to fall on me. And here is our advocate. That's the argument that Jesus pleads for us. He says to his father, the judge, There's no reason for you to be angry at Paul anymore. There's no need for you to punish him. That's not because he didn't sin, he did. But it's because I took his sins away and I've already paid for them in full on the cross with the result that Paul now is not your enemy. He's not dirty in your sight. He's forgiven. He's your friend. He is at one with you and me, atoning sacrifice, making us at one with God. Well, that is the promise, because Jesus offered on the cross a full, a complete, and all-sufficient sacrifice for every sin of all of his people. His death never needs to be repeated. Uh, It never needs to be supplemented. Because, and we can be absolutely sure that every time we come back to him, in the words of verse 7, he will purify us from all, from every sin. I think this tells us something very important about the DNA of any, any and every Christian church. Uh, when we gather like this on a Sunday, who are we? Do we gather like this because we've got life sorted? Do we gather like this because we think that we are better than the people who don't come to church on a Sunday morning? Who are we? At our very core, we are a people of confession and forgiveness. I will say a confession of sins together in a few moments. We don't do that as though it's a morbid or depressing thing. Neither is it any kind of magic form of words in the prayers that we happen to use that somehow make it work in a way that you couldn't confess your sins at home. But it is good for us to remember and admit together that we are sinners. Not to stop there, though, but also to claim and to rely afresh on the promise of forgiveness that is ours in Jesus Christ. That expresses who we are. It is our DNA. We are no more and no less than forgiven sinners. 
In turn, I'll just say this in passing because John does, that has a wonderfully liberating effect on all of our relationships. Uh, We can be at peace with ourselves because we don't have to pretend that we're better than we are. We can be at peace with each other too. Did you see that in verse 7? If we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. The foundation of any true community is honesty. And one of the loveliest things about church is that we don't have to pretend that we're something we're not. I mean, I'd love you to think that I'm perfect, and I'm sure you'd love me to think that you don't sin. That's a lie, and the light of God exposes it. And so when we get together, we don't have to project this image that we're sorted and sinless. We can be real. We can be honest with one another about our struggles. And if church is working as it should, we can be confident of two things. On the one hand, no one is going to condone our sin and say that it doesn't matter. But then no one's going to condemn us for our sin either or stand in judgment over us because they are sinners too. And instead, what we'll help one another to do in our conversations is to come back to Christ together not condoning, not condemning, but confessing our sin and claiming the forgiveness that Jesus won all over again. And we will enjoy true fellowship with one another as well as deep and genuine fellowship with God himself. So let me end by saying what would have happened if you'd gone to John and said that you were worried about the presence of ongoing sin in your life, this painful inconsistency in your life and mine. Uh, He wouldn't have said, don't worry, you're no worse than anyone else. He wouldn't have said, God doesn't want you to feel guilty. He wouldn't have said, if it feels right to you, then it is right. He would have said, yes, you have sinned. And yes, it is serious. But that doesn't mean that you're not a proper Christian. Actually, it's a sure sign that you're walking in the light and living in real fellowship with God. So don't give in to sin. I'm writing this so that you don't sin. I'm writing this so that the the truth of grace strengthens you to fight against sin. But fight it knowing that you'll stumble. And when you do, be reassured. Because if we confess our sins, when we confess our sins... God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Which is a wonderful place for us to be as we come to the Lord's Supper together. But let me just pray briefly. Our Father, we do want to thank you indeed that you are light and that there is no darkness in you. We want to confess that the light exposes our darkness. We can't pretend that we're better than we are. We know that we sin. And so we praise you for the forgiveness that you offer, the cleansing, the purification that is ours perfectly in the Lord Jesus. And not just for us, but for anyone and everyone all over the world who confesses his name and claims his forgiveness. We praise you for his blood. 
in his precious name. Amen.